Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 19. Acts chapter 19. The last two Sundays, Paul has been in the large city of Ephesus, which remembers on the far western coast of modern-day Turkey. And Paul has had this incredibly fruitful time of ministry. As I mentioned, a lot of people have said this may have been the high watermark of Paul's ministry in terms of his earthly life and what he saw as fruitfulness. He had two years where he had that rented hall of Tyrannus, remember? And he was there for two years teaching all day, every day. When he wasn't working on tents, he was there for perhaps five hours a day teaching God's Word for two straight years, 3,000 hours of Bible teaching. You remember last week we talked about this guy from the city of Colossae, a Colossian named Epaphras who came to uh, Ephesus, no doubt, and was converted and went back and started a church. And on and on, there was churches being planted in all the cities around Ephesus during this time, and it was a tremendously fruitful period of time, but it was not a time without its challenges. And here we get an extended treatment of one of the life-or-death moments with the Apostle Paul I should probably just say one of the many life-or-death moments with the Apostle Paul. Uh, it is known as the riot at Ephesus, which came toward the latter part of his two and a half to three years spent in the city. And let me… I, I'm going to take this passage today in pieces as we walk through it. Uh, I've titled the sermon, The Riot in Ephesus, and I have three points. The riot in Ephesus, three points. Number one, the idols, number two, the riot, number three, the resolution. So, number one, the, the idols, number two, the riot, and number three, the resolution, and you will see where I'm getting these points. They just, the text just falls into three paragraphs, essentially, that follow this train of thought. So, uh, we will start here with this opening section. Let's read verses 21 uh, and 22, and this is, again, the Word of the Lord. Now, after these events, Paul resolved in the Spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem, saying, after I have been there, I must also see Rome. And I have sent into Macedonia, two, and having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. Now, these are introductory comments. I will just, I'm not going to say much here. I plan to come back to these verses next Sunday, Lord willing, and to fill in a little bit more of what's going on, because remember, during these years, he's writing three, he's written three letters to the Corinthians, only one of which we have in God's sovereignty, 1 Corinthians. He's about to write 2 Corinthians and the book of Romans right around the corner. So, we'll talk about some of those details next Sunday, Lord willing. So, Paul has plans to head to Jerusalem soon, and then on to Rome. Verse 23, this is where trouble begins. About that time, there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. These he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, "'Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that gods made with hands are not gods.'" And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing, and that she may even be deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. 
Now, I don't want to overwhelm you with a quick set of images here, but just look on the screen. These are some artistic renderings. You may remember that this is what Ephesus essentially would have looked like at the time Paul was there. Uh, you can see the water right there on the, on the left part of the screen, which uh, turned really to unusable, really kind of nasty water, which ended up hurting Ephesus later in its history. But uh, you can see the, uh, the amphitheater there. Now, we're going to take a picture kind of coming the other direction over the city. Uh, you can see the amphitheater to the left and the water area and this, this large city, perhaps 200,000-plus people uh, when Paul is there and a little time after Paul. Uh, this is a modern-day picture looking down one of the major roads of the city. Um, just, just to tell you, I don't, this is not important that you know, but do you see this beautiful two-story building right there? That is a, a library, and that library was not built for a couple of decades after Paul. It came just a few decades, so Paul would not have seen that building when he was there, but it still stands two stories high. You can go see it to this day. And um, this roadway would have looked something like this to give an artistic rendering of the same roadway. You would have these statues going down and these, uh, these, these different colors and the buildings looking like that. Uh, it would have looked something like that when Paul would have walked down the road. Just uh, behind the main part of the city was this temple to the goddess Artemis. This temple was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was four times as big as the Parthenon. So, you know, the Parthenon building in Athens is famous to this day. This thing was, made the Parthenon look small by comparison. Here's another image. You can see here that uh, there was a hole in the top of the building, 127 columns, 63 feet tall each. This was, for the time period, this was an astonishingly glorious, massive work of architecture. And you can see a person, you see that person right there? Beautiful right there, tiny little person. Now, look, look, look here, we got a, kind of going up over the top. If you see the hole over the top of this place right there, if you were to walk in, so you walk up these stairs and walk in the main front door right there, this is what you would see. You would see a, a statue uh, of, of the goddess Artemis there, and she was um, apparently a virgin goddess. She was also a goddess of fertility and childbirth, also the goddess of the hunt, and some said even a goddess having to do with death as well. So from birth perhaps even to death and uh, the hunt in the middle. Uh, so there's this massive statue of her, of hers in this place, and uh, this guy Demetrius and his friends would have sold these little goddess statues of Artemis that you could take home and you could put in your house so that you could pray to Artemis at your home and you could keep this with you. They've still they've dug up num numerous, numerous of these. They would have also made small versions of the temple itself to sell. And, you know, just like you go to a tourist attraction, people will, uh, you know, sell lots of things. Well, worshiping this idol, they made big business selling this kind of stuff. Now, you want to see how glorious the temple of Artemis looks today? Are you ready? One column still standing today right there in the picture. You can see the floor plan is here on these posters, but it's just an empty field today with one column sort of left standing. It is destroyed. A satellite image, just I want to give you the picture of what's going on. <clears throat> so here is the, the amphitheater where the riot is going to break out a little later in the story and the big hill there. If you go all the way back here, the Temple of Artemis was far behind the major part of the city, way back there. And if you visit today, it's one of the best remains of an ancient city because the city was vacated not that long after Paul was there, a number of time, a little time after Paul had left. It was vacated, so much of it remains as it is today. And uh, we'll pick back up with this in just a moment. So let me, uh, let's direct our eyes back to our text here and let's reread some of these verses. Verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now, let me just stop there. The, the true preaching of the gospel, the true preaching of the gospel is going to, when it is effective, it is going to cause a certain kind of disturbance or a certain kind of trouble. 
Uh, how amazing would it be if the gospel of Jesus was preached by faithful churches in the city of Athens, and in coming years, so many people were affected, and so many people were converted, and so many people were genuinely changed by the gospel of Christ that the economic, uh, the, the economic status of certain places in the city would actually be in question, especially those that are connected specifically to sin itself. Uh, imagine if the gospel was so effective in this region that places that were actually established for the sake of sin or idolatry began to be economically impacted in that time. Verse 24, for a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Just, just pause here. I love how Luke writes. He always says, no little you know, when something big is happening, there was no little disturbance, and they were making no little amount of money. I just love the way, the way Luke writes. So, there was no little disturbance, and they were making no small business. Verse 25, these he gathered together, all the craftsmen, with the workmen in similar trades, and said, men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying, the gods made with hands are not gods. So, this first point is about the idols themselves. And what you will notice is there's an obvious idol, Artemis. She has this enormous temple, this enormous uh, statue of her inside the temple. Okay, that's very clear. Some idolatry is incredibly obvious on the face of it. You can see it. You don't have to even think about it. There it is. Um, some idolatry is a little more subtle. And Demetrius here, he's concerned, obviously, about his goddess Artemis, no doubt. I mean, to put it this way, you know, Artemis put Ephesus on the map in a large way. It, it, you could not separate Artemis from Ephesus. They were intimately connected in, in many different ways, religiously, economically, socially, in terms, of, in terms of people coming there and travel. And so, not only is there Artemis being an idol, but there's also the wealth that these men made that is one of their, one of their idols. Now, uh, we talk about idolatry pretty regularly around here. I, I want to spend a few minutes unpacking this idea of idolatry in general, because today, hard to meet someone locally, you might find someone who does actually have a figurine or a statue that they touch or that they pray to or that they pray in front of or something like that. But the, the more direct or crass versions to us of idolatry are not as common today, but idolatry is something that is as old as the fall of man. Uh, it does not involve necessarily a statue that someone bows down to. Idolatry is what happens all day, every day, and every human being is either worshiping an idol or recovering from worshiping an idol because that's where all of us are. So, how do you know if you yourself are actually worshiping an idol? Demetrius knew he was making little replicas of the idol. He was going to the temple and he would offer sacrifice and perhaps who knows what he would do there to, to offer to the goddess. Of course, he knew he was worshiping an idol. But how do I know if I am worshiping an idol? since our idols are no longer done in this particular way. Here are some things to think about. I'm borrowing this material from, many other, from other thinkers and writers and theologians. Here are some things to think about when it comes to idolatry. How do I know if I have an idol? Well, it has been said that when you ask someone what they are really living for, they will usually, usually tell you a very fine-sounding answer. They'll say, I'm living for the Lord, or I'm living for, you know, I want to help my family, or, you know, I'm just trying to, you know, do this or that. And we, we, everything we say publicly often sounds quite noble and respectable. But is that always the truth? Well, no. How do I know what I'm really living for? The, the, one of the questions you can ask is this, what is it that I most fear about my life, losing or not getting? What is it I most fear to lose or to not receive in my lifetime? And when you start thinking about this, you could say, what is my greatest nightmare? What is my greatest fear? I'm not talking, uh, you know, nightmare in the sense of like, you know, something spooky or something like that. I'm talking nightmare in terms of something you could lose that you just would not know how to recover from. And if you think about it, in our world, there are things where 
people would say, if I were to lose this, I would no longer have the will to continue to live. So, tragically, I mean, just tragically, in the last, I don't know, 20 years, uh, suicide rates have climbed, especially with younger people. Uh, it, it, is a, it is a horrific and tragic thing. And when someone says, listen, because I do not have fill in the blank, or because something has been taken from me that I can no longer have, therefore I no longer feel like life has purpose or meaning. I no longer feel like I have a reason to get out of bed in the morning and continue through the trials and struggles of life. I want to get rid of this. I want to end this right now because it is no longer worth it. That, this is not trying to be cruel. This is trying to be helpful. People in that state, in some way or another, are worshiping something that either they don't have or was taken from them, and because they don't think they can get it back or can never have it, they feel like there is no purpose, there is no reason to continue living. What is it, what is it for you? So here, here's a maybe an even more practical thing to think about. In, in your life and in mine, one of the things we can look for is this. Inordinate emotion. So by inordinate, I mean over the top, too much, okay? Inordinate emotion. Okay, we all have emotion. Emotion is designed by God. Human beings have emotions because we are made in, in God's image, not that God has emotion in that sense, but we have emotions as human beings, and we, nothing wrong with feeling uh, concerned about something that matters or feeling discouraged about something that matters or whatever it may be. But inordinate emotion is a sign that we are setting our hopes on something other than Jesus. Inordinate affections could be positive or negative. We'll start with the negative ones first. So I mentioned inordinate fear, right? Inordinate fear that consumes you about something could be the sign of an idol. Inordinate anxiety. I think this one is just right at the heart of, of if you want to find the idols in your heart, what makes you worry the most inordinately over the top in a way that you cannot rest or find peace in the Lord because this thing, what if this doesn't happen the way I hope? Isn't that worry? What if it doesn't turn out the way I hope it does? And we are, we're fixing our heart on that in such a way that if I don't get what I want, I just feel like it's an ultimate loss. It's a loss of something I must have. So inordinate anxiety, inordinate anger. Anger, again, there is a place for righteous anger. Jesus got angry at times with sin, and even with death at Lazarus' tomb, He was angry at sin and death. But anger is, is an appropriate thing if done rightly, but so often our anger is inordinate and sinful. James says the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. And so, very often, inordinate anger, anger that is uncontrolled and uncontrollable in us, it may be because, listen, I'm worshiping the God of comfort, and something gets in the way of my comfort in a severe way, and what is my reaction? I'm angry about it. I'm inordinately angry in a way that does not make biblical or rational sense. That would be a sign of, of an idol. Speaking positively, something that, that can change your mood in a split second in an incredibly positive way, an over-the-top excitement or an over-the-top happiness in a particular thing that is all-consuming and perhaps overpowering, those can also be the signs of an idol. So what is an idol? An idol is anything that we look to to do what only Jesus can do for us in our life. An idol is anything we look to to be Jesus in our life, anything we look to to be God in our life. And think about this, whatever you look to to be your God, you are looking to to save you in some way, save you from whatever it may be, whatever, whatever you don't want. It's save you in some way. And whatever you look to to save you is going to become not just your attempted Savior, but also your Lord. Lord and Savior goes together. When you try to worship something as your Savior to deliver you, rescue you, help you in some ultimate way, you will find 
that you have to serve this thing in a slavish sort of way. If it's a relationship, maybe you're dating and you're dating someone, and it's just fine to feel good about that, and if the, if the relationship breaks up and it's, it's hard, it's okay to feel, to feel some pain over that, to feel some discouragement over that. I, I, that's completely normal. But if in that relationship you are looking for that person that you are dating to do for you what only Jesus can do for you, then there is going to be inordinate anxiety attached, inordinate fear attached, inordinate perhaps happiness or excitement all wrapped around this person. And suddenly, before long, you are looking to this person to actually give you significance, to actually fulfill you, to actually be for you what only God can be for you. And before long, guess what? You are enslaved to the whims of this girl or boy. You're enslaved to what this person thinks about you or says about you. You're, you're enslaved to them. And so, it is not wrong to feel emotions about those things, but you understand when it becomes inordinate, that is a sign that an idol has me by, by the throat. How do we get free of that? Well, we must turn from trusting in those false hopes and false promises, and trust in Jesus, who is the only God, as I've heard someone say, He's the only God who, when you fail Him, can forgive you, and when you worship Him, can fulfill you. He's the only God. If you live for your career, and you fail your career, and you get fired for something you've done wrong, your career cannot forgive you. It's just over. It's done, and you'll, you'll kick yourself, beat yourself up for the rest of your life over that failure because if you were looking for the ultimate and climbing the corporate ladder to some place up there, and you messed up, and you got fired, and you lost that job, or someone got you fired, or whatever it is, you will feel inordinate bitterness and anger and all these things attached, and you'll never be able to move past it. You'll never be able to move on. Any, anything you cannot get over or get past ever would be a sign that my heart is united to an idol, that it is bowing down and worshiping a false god. Well, do we see signs of idolatry in this story? Demetrius says, oh, you're hurting my God, so guess what? I'm going to get angry at you. I'm going to start a riot. I'm going to do everything I can to try to stop you, and even if I have to, kill you, because anything that threatens our idol, we become embittered against. Look uh, here at what he is worshiping. He's worshiping Artemis, of course, but he's also worshiping his wealth in verse 25, and he's also worshiping the reputation of his area, of, of, of Ephesus itself. And Paul's ministry had such effect, it was actually impacting uh, Artemis at this time. Let's look at point number two, the riot. When, this is verse 28, when they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, great is Artemis, of the Ephesians. So the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried one thing, and some cried uh, some another. For the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not even know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward, and Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. But when they recognized that he was a Jew, for about two hours they cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. So look with me again on the screen uh, here. This is an artist uh, depiction of of where the amphitheater is looking out, but if you want to see it, what it looks like today a little closer, uh, here you have the amphitheater. And this is the exact spot on earth where this riot happened. It happened in the Ephesian amphitheater, which is well-preserved. It seats about 20, almost 25,000 people, which for that time period, that's one of the largest ones in the Roman uh, world that could, that could sit there. And if you look here, this is the very spot. Now, if you look at these ruins that are 
right here. This little area right there, that used to be a large structure that was kind of the back of the, the stage. And you can look at what it used to look like. So the bottom image is what it looks like today. The top image is an artist's reconstruction, which had the, that really ornate design there at the back of the stage. It would have looked something like that top image when Paul is here. Uh, Paul was not actually in the, in the amphitheater, but they wanted Paul to come in because they wanted to, to harm him. But they bring two of his traveling companions in, and thousands of people stand here in that upper picture, and they are shouting at the top of their lungs, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And uh, I just have to say, this, this makes me smile. Look at verse 32. Now, some cried out one thing, some another, for the assembly was in confusion, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Someone said that describes social media in a single verse. Uh, Someone said, that, that is Twitter right there. Uh, some cried one thing, some another. They were in confusion. Most people didn't know what they were doing there. So anyways, that, that's a picture of nothing has changed really in a couple thousand years. But here you have it. This riot starts. Most people have no idea what the actual, what actually instigated the riot. They just go, hey, there's a riot going on. Let's go join the riot and start rioting. So they head out there. And listen, I don't normally like to just give you these kinds of things, but I, I want to tell you the, the Greek words just because the, the, the words in Greek of what they were chanting have a kind of rhythm to them, and someone pointed this out to me. Just, just listen to this. The, 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 it kind of goes hard syllable soft back and forth. So, so listen, this is what they're… You can almost hear them like, you know, flexing, like going like this back and forth. It says, Megale hey Artemis Ephesion. Megale hey Artemis Ephesion. That's a pretty good chant right there. Okay, so they're, they're chanting that at the top of their lungs, and when they find out that a, a Jewish man is present, which we'll talk about in a second, they go, this prejudice comes out. They go, we don't want to hear from a Jew right now, and so they have this anti-Semitic anti sentiment, and they, for two straight hours, Megalehe Artemis Ephesion, great is Artemis of the Ephesians, and they shout it at the top of their lungs for two straight uh, hours. Now, um, I want to make a distinction here. Uh, I always like to make a comparison, but I, I, please don't misunderstand. This is not an anti-football uh, analogy. I know everyone suspects that I am anti-football. I'm not anti-football. But let, let me, the clo closest comparison I have is right down the street here, Sanford Stadium. It's, clo I mean, it's 91,000 people or whatever the number is, but it's a, it's a massive stadium right down the street here. And you've been there on a game day, which most of you have. You, you know how just intense it can be. Now, not all of this is sinful. I'm not saying that. But just try, try to imagine for a second. Imagine that it was just purely like, imagine it was the same as Artemis. It was actually sinful to the core. Like it was just all idolatry. Now imagine, imagine that's what it was. And imagine that the gospel was, was ringing out in Athens so much that it was affecting whether or not UGA's season would be able to happen because of the drastic re reduction of crowd size. Do you can you imagine the kind of rage that would be directed towards the Christian group trying to, trying to get rid of that idol? You see what I'm saying? Ar Artemis of the Ephesians was the center of the city. It put them on the map. It's why people knew Ephesus. Oh, yeah, you, you guys have the seven wonders of the world. You guys have the temple to Artemis. You guys are, that's amazing. I want to come see that. And they sell all these shrines. Well, P Paul's preaching has been so effective for three years that churches are just growing in the area, and it's hurting their trade. And they say, listen, no more of this. And they start shouting and screaming in this amphitheater to try to stop it. Now, some of the characteristics of a riot that you see here are... Number one, anger, verse 28. When they heard this, they were enraged. So number one, riots are obviously known for uncontrolled anger. Number two, we mentioned this already, verse 29 and 32, they were in confusion. So confusion, riots oftentimes it's confusing as to what exactly is even happening. Number three, riots can be known for prejudice. Now listen, rioting crowds are not known for careful thinking. 
I don't know if you've noticed this about rights. It, it, rights people are trying to get up to kind of give a word of wisdom and like, let me explain what's happening. And there, there's, no, there's no reasoning with the crowd. After two hours, the town clerk begins to reason with them. But for the first two hours, they don't want to hear anything because crowds tend to be, riots tend to be overly angry, confused, and then prejudiced. And then also they, they will often shout brief mantras. Mantras that may or may not be well thought out. You know, they may be good mantras, they may be bad mantras, but they're often very simplified ideas that, that everything kind of circulates around and that is sort of shouted at the top of their voices. And uh, look carefully here at what Paul wants to do. So you don't want to be Paul's traveling companion unless you're ready. Okay, so look, look at verse 29. The city was filled with confusion. They rushed together into the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go in among the crowd… I just want to stop there. That, that is not a wish I would have naturally shared with Paul. Paul says, hey, this is a great chance to preach the gospel. I'm going, Paul. Everyone around him is going, Paul, Paul, they're going to kill you. If you go in there, they are going to, as a mob, they will kill you. Just like Stephen was stoned to death and Paul watched as an unbeliever. That's going to happen to you, Paul. And so, they, they're trying to restrain Paul. And Paul's like, let go of me. I want to go in there and preach. It's like, I mean, look at this. Tens, tens of thousands of people ready to go. I can get up there on the platform. I can preach Jesus. It's going to be fantastic. Maybe people will be converted. They're like, Paul, Paul, we love you. We've we got to hold you back, man. We've got to hold you back right now. They're trying to hold on to Paul. Look at verse 30. Again, when Paul wished to go in among the tr crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, you can see there that's high-ranking officers in the province of Asia. These are probably not believers, probably. Even some of the Asiarchs who were friends of Paul's sent to him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Even the local authorities say, Paul, you are on a suicide mission if you go in there. Please do not go in. It will not end well for you. In verse 32, some cried out one thing, some another. The assembly was in confusion. Most of them did not know why they had come together. Some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews had put forward. And Alexander, motioning with his hand, wanted to make a defense to the crowd. Now, just stop here for a second. This is, man, Alexander is almost certainly not a Christian Jew. He is a Jew with the other Jews, not unbelieving Jews. And what they're probably doing is this. Is Paul Jewish? Yes. Are they Jewish as non-Christians? Yes. They don't want to be confused with Paul's crowd. We are, we are not followers of the way. We're not Jesus Jews. We're, we're, we're Jews over here. We don't, we don't believe what that guy believes. So they're trying to probably have one of their people stand up and say, listen, we are separating ourselves from Paul. We're not with Paul. He's on another team. And as soon as he goes to speak, the crowd recognized that he is Jewish, verse 34. But when they recognized that he was a Jew for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay, point number three here, the resolution of what happens also an unbeliever here, every indication would be, verse 35, and when the town clerk, he would have had a lot of authority in this city, had quieted the crowd, he said, men of, Ephes men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of, of the Ephesians is temple keeper of the great Artemis and of the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Now, that probably, it's hard to know for sure, it may refer to a meteorite, a small meteorite that had fallen nearby, and they took it as a sign that Artemis had sent them this meteorite. And they, they had perhaps even moved the meteorite into the temple of Artemis, saying that Artemis sent us this stone, and we're going to honor her by putting it in the, uh, in the temple, the sacred stone that fell from the sky. Verse 36, seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing. So, you don't, don't have to jot these down, but the four points this guy gives, number one, the, the town clerk says, number one, the, Artemis is world famous. There is no way people are going to forget about Artemis anytime soon. That's his first point. Number two, 
verse 37. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious nor blasphemers of our goddess. Now, stop there. In one sense, he's right. In one sense, he's wrong. Clearly, Paul was a blasphemer of any false god. So, Paul would be considered blaspheming Artemis because he says gods made by hands are not gods. I mean, that would be considered blasphemous, but probably he's getting at this point. They have not done anything illegal to Artemis or to the, to the Artemis temple. He, they haven't gone in there and, and raided the temple. They haven't, you know, sprayed graffiti on the side. They haven't done anything that's been publicly illegal. They haven't done anything wrong here uh, against uh, the goddess in that sense. Verse 38, they give, he gives the third point. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with him have a complaint against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. This man has some common sense as an unbeliever. He says, listen, if you have a legitimate legal charge, a riot is not the way to handle this. Take it to the proconsuls. The courts are open. They will hear your case. Go take it to a legal authority and have them actually hear you out. Don't just start a riot. Number four reason, he says, to stop the crowd from rioting. Verse 40. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that can be given to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the fourth reason he gives is saying, listen, they're not the ones, we're about to get ourselves in trouble, not Paul. We're about to get ourselves in trouble with Rome if we don't settle this thing down soon, because the Roman peace is what the Romans were all about, keeping the peace and not uh, having some kind of riot. And I don't think I've mentioned this hardly at all in the Acts series, but I should have probably mentioned it sooner. Everybody's in agreement on this. I don't think it's even disputable. One of the reasons, it's not the most important reason, but one of the reasons Luke wrote Luke and Acts for sure was to try to show, remember he wrote the book to most excellent Theophilus, some kind of high-level leader in the Roman world, and he says, listen, I'm trying to show you something. Christianity may in some circles have a bad reputation for all these riots and all this stuff that happens, but what Luke is carefully showing you is, is it Paul's fault that this disorderly and lawless conduct is happening? No. Paul is the one at the end of the day who's always being cleared by the authorities. Have you noticed that? I mean, you look over and over and over again. When a riot starts, Paul says, okay, like, what's the legal charge? And throughout the rest of Acts, this becomes a clear theme. Paul is brought before Felix. He's brought before uh, Governor Festus. He's brought before King Agrippa. He's brought before Nero himself, soon to await his, his trial. And every single time, what happens? The, the, the ruling governors go, we don't even know what this guy has done wrong. He certainly has done nothing deserving death. And Luke is including these stories to say, listen, Christianity is not meant to be a threat to the government. It's not meant to be some kind of anarchy scheme where we overturn the government or something like that. He said, no, listen. Insofar as we're able, we, we want to be submissive to the governing authorities. Uh, I understand that uh, in our culture right now, uh, things are difficult in some ways, and some things get very challenging in terms of knowing how to submit and what to do. But clearly, what Luke is including this story is saying, listen, Christian, Christianity is not meant to be a, a, a threat to the civil order. It is meant rather to be submi submitting to Jesus, not worshiping Roman gods, but they should be wonderful citizens so far as they are able to do so. And, and Paul is being shown over and over again to be clear, uh, cleared of the charges that are brought uh, before him. Turn with me uh, in closing here to the Luke's Gospel, and let's go toward the tail end of Luke's Gospel. Look with me at chapter 22, and you will see the same theme by the same author, Luke, uh, with Jesus Himself. Look with me at Luke 22, and look at verse 63. This is right after Peter's denial of Jesus, Luke 22, verse 63. 
Now the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking Him as they beat Him. They also blindfolded Him and kept asking Him, prophesy, who is it that struck you? And they said many other things against Him, blaspheming Him. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led Him away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But He said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And I ask you, you will, and if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of power of the power of God. So they all said, Are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, You say that I am. Then they said, What further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. Then the whole company, this is 23.1, then the whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. And they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar and saying that he himself is Christ a king. Now pause there. Do you see the same theme? But in a much more astonishing situation with Christ himself, they're accusing him of being lawless. You're trying to overturn the order. You're, you're, you're trying to start this revolt. You're trying to overturn all the… Un, you're trying to create unrest in the world. You're forbidding paying of taxes. Now, did Jesus forbid taxes to Caesar? No. Give to Caesar what is Caesar. Give to God's what is God. Verse 3. And Pilate asked him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, you have said so, which was a way of affirming. Verse 4, Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee even to this place. Now, do you see the theme is so clear here? They're charging him with doing something really illegal, really wrong, really bad. And Pilate himself, the governor, the Roman governor, says, I find what? nothing wrong with him. I don't find anything of law-breaking in this man, he, nothing at all. But then they said, no, he's stirring up the people. He's creating riots. Verse 6, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. When he learned that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him over to Herod, who was himself in Jerusalem at that time. When Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad, for he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him and was hoping to see some sign done by him. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him. And Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends with each other that very day, for before this, day, before this they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, You brought me this man as one who is misleading the people. And after examining, examining him before you, behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him, neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done by him. I will therefore punish and release him. I'm going to continue briefly. Look at 18. But they all cried out together, away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus, but they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I found in him no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that the demand should be granted. He released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, for whom they asked, but he delivered Jesus over to their will. Now, you, you see here, the point is being made so clearly, even the secular authorities say, 
there's no reason to put him to death, and yet the unbelieving people present are crying out like an angry mob, and they're saying, no, crucify him. He's guilty of all these crimes that he himself was actually not guilty of. So we as believers, we should imitate Jesus. We should imitate Paul. Some of what we will do will upset things, right? It will. will. Not everyone will be happy with our faith in Christ. That is absolutely true. It creates unrest in some ways. But we ourselves should be, generally speaking, we should be good citizens. And when we are able, uh, we should submit to our governing authorities as, as Paul and Jesus exemplified. All right, let's bow our heads together. Lord Jesus, thank You that You did no violence and there was no deceit in Your mouth, and yet You were led like a lamb to the slaughter, and like a sheep before His shearers is silent, You did not open Your mouth. Thank You that You were the ultimate righteous one, that You went around doing good, and yet despite that, and even because of that, You were hated. You were Uh, considered stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted by others, one from whom men hide their faces, you were despised. And on the cross, you took the penalty for the sin that we have committed, if we will trust in you, and you buried it in the ground, and you rose victorious on that first uh, Sunday morning, that first Lord's Day morning, and you will come again to judge the world in righteousness. Help us, Lord, to be most importantly obedient to you and to your word. Uh, Help us to live in such a way that the gospel would be evident in our life and that others would be in the right way shaken up by our faith in Christ Uh, and in the right way would even be unsettled by our faith in Christ as Demetrius was and as others were as well. Uh, Help our uh, boldness for you be mingled with a genuine humility and love, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.